back to Philippians, um, uh, the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Have that open in front of you. Have any of you been in a tug-of-war? Have any of you been in a tug-of-war? Yeah, some of you have been in a tug-of-war. You know how tug-of-war goes, don't you? Um, there are two teams. They face off against each other, maybe 10, 12, maybe 50. I've seen very large tug-of-wars. It's quite fun, actually. There are two teams. They face off against each other. There's a big, long rope. One's pulling one way. One's pulling the other. In the middle of the rope, there's a marker. And that marker tells you who wins. If it crosses the team, say, on the left, their little line in the ground, if it crosses that first, they've won. If it crosses the team on the right, their line on the ground, presumably it's the same distance apart, they've won. They're pulling against each other. That's how tug of war goes. You know how tug of war goes. Now just imagine, okay? Imagine a team, the team on the left. Maybe 12, 14 people all pulling. Imagine a team on the left. Imagine your team, imagine your team does this kind of thing. Imagine a tug-of-war team where just before they start, three of a 12-member squad, you know, because they think that they should all have red hair, give up and walk away. Imagine that. What would that do to a tug-of-war team? Imagine then a number member who, another member who has always thought that they should be leading starts pulling deliberately out of time to deliberately make the point that he can pull better than everybody else. What would that do to the team? Imagine a team where there are three at the front who are pulling for a few moments, and then, you know, after a few moments, they just, they just get a bit moany, and they complain about those behind them who aren't really pulling as hard as them. You know, they want gloves like everybody else has, and they, they complain that someone may have trodden on their foot. Imagine a team where that happens. Is that tug-of-war team going to win? Imagine a team right near the end where it's, where it's already going horribly wrong, to say the least, when the, the guy at the end, instead of pulling to the left, my left, your right, instead of pulling to the left, he starts pushing. And everybody just falls over. The other team is going to look on that and think, what is going on? Sadly, I think, in a very similar way, the world and the community around us can look at the church and wonder what is going on. What is going on? It may have passed you by, but Christians historically and locally here know what it means to struggle to pull together in the same direction. They really do know what it means to struggle in that. Doing church being a God-glorifying community that is united around proclaiming the good news about Jesus to the wider world is hard. It is very hard, consistently doing that. And it gets harder when there's any kind of pressure, pressure from illness, pressure from troubles, or pressure from people outside the church just simply not liking us or opposing us. 
It gets hard because naturally, under pressure, or even when we're not under pressure, naturally, in our natural selves, without Christ, we want a church group, we want a church community that suits us. We want church to be the way we want it to be, to serve our interests. It's so hard sometimes that when there are lots of church groups around, other churches, just in Bedford or other areas, that for some reason, that if for some reason that we're dissatisfied, we find ourselves sorely tempted to do what we do in Tesco's when we don't like the last kind of Frosties we bought. We go and buy the other brand. We go shopping for another church group that suits our needs better. And as far as I can tell, the part of the Bible we read today addresses this huge issue of pulling together. Not pulling together for the sake of just pulling together. Not pulling together in some sort of style or preference but pulling together to ensure that the good news about Jesus that we claim to believe and trust in advances throughout the world. Here's the first thing I want you to think about here. We should fearlessly proclaim the gospel, the message about Jesus, we should fearly proclaim the gospel, the message about Jesus, together. Look at verse 27 to 29. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I, whether I come to you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Remember the tug-of-war team? Remember the member who for some reason started pushing at the end and everyone falls over because he's not pulling together? Remember that picture? Well, Paul is longing that this little church in Philippi would actually pull together. Now, they're under pressure. We learned that last week. In chapter 1, verse 13 and 20, you hear that Paul and this church in Philippi are under great pressure. Paul is in prison. Actually, it's worse than just being in prison. He's having his first death row experience. He probably had another. He probably survived this one. But this is a genuine death row experience. Now, you can't imagine people ever selling death row experiences for your 50th birthday, can you? You can't imagine that. And the reason you can't imagine that is because it is awful. This group who follow Jesus by, li- by, by hearing from Paul through Epaphroditus, this group are seeing their leader in a terrible situation. And they're full of fear, naturally. We would be full of fear if our pastors or our elders were put in prison. We would be, it would be natural to feel afraid. But not only is this group seeing their leader under pressure, they are under pressure. Paul tells them so, that they've been given two gifts. Look at verse 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Do you see the two gifts there that they've been given? They've been given the gift to believe in Jesus. Every Christian, when they believe in Jesus, that is a gift from God. And here are these little church 
there's this little church and they've been given this gift to trust in God and to love him and to, and to enjoy all his benefits. Only when that happened in Philippi, it really shook the community up. Some people started losing money. A slave girl was rescued from slavery to Satan and some people lost money because they trusted in Jesus. And as soon as people start losing money, the pressure comes. So they get the second gift, the second gift from God, the gift to suffer for Jesus. They were under pressure simply for following Jesus. And that pressure was beginning to tell on their relationships. So much so, Paul says in this public letter, I plead with Euodia, I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord, in chapter 4, verse 2. So Paul writes here, longing to hear good news from his church that's under pressure, longing to hear this wonderful news that whether he comes or whether he just hears about it, that they will live a life worthy of Christ. And that that life that's worthy of Christ looks like this. It looks like that they are a unit of a group of people, a unit, pulling together to share the gospel. Whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence... I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one. What for? For the faith of the gospel. The unity Paul longs to hear about here is not a unity with everyone about anything. It's not a unity with some people in the early church who he later calls dogs in this very letter. People who didn't like trusting in Christ for forgiveness. They wanted to give you Jewish law. Paul says, don't have unity with them. I want you to be in unity about loving Jesus and believing in him alone for rescue. This is not a unity with Muslims, with Buddhists, with Hindus, with Sikhs, or whatever religion you might choose that does not value Jesus in the way Paul did. It is a unity around getting the news about Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and the forgiveness and family that that brings to people out there. It is a unity around faith in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, a historical figure that our community and further afield needs to hear. The thing that Paul longs is that he will find them united around getting that message out. As he knows they've already been in the past, he calls them partners in the gospel. And the thing he longs that he won't hear about is that they're afraid. Verse 28, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Now that is staggering, isn't it? Do you hear that? Don't be frightened by the fact that they put you in prison. Don't be frightened that they shout at you and jeer at you and don't want to hear about Jesus. Don't be frightened. There's no reason to be frightened. End of verse 28. There's no reason to be frightened because this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. Their very unity in working for the gospel their very unity in getting Jesus and the message about him out to the world, their very effort in doing that without fear is a sign from God to the world 
of ultimate realities. Following Jesus is the right thing to do. Not following Jesus is disastrous. We should fearlessly tell people the gospel together. Christian churches are contenders. Someone described a Christian church as a battleship for the gospel. We are contenders with the wider world. We conflict with the wider world's ideas, hopes, dreams, and approaches. Christian unity is not about merging with an idea that you may like or think of. Christian unity is about contending together for the faith of the gospel, seeing the good news about Jesus spread whilst praying that people will trust it. In a gospel-focused church, you want to find all kinds of different Christians from all kinds of lands, with all kinds of faces and hair and personality and preferences. You want to find all kinds of people, and what will they be doing? They will be learning how to tell their story, how to tell how they've been forgiven by God, and how to point their story to Jesus. You will find a group and a community of people who are learning how to explain the good news about Jesus, coming and dying and rising and ruling in the most natural and culturally appropriate way possible. You're going to find a community who will do all they can to display the good news about Jesus because that is their focus. They will use all their gifts, all their love, all their kindness, all their talent to put Jesus on display together. What you won't find is fear of any opponent who may rise Because a Christian's end is utterly assured by God. The core purpose of the church is to ensure people hear about Jesus and pray that they will be given the faith to believe what they have heard. We should fearlessly, even in the midst of pressure, fearlessly, Proclaim the gospel together. That's what he longed to hear from them, I think. But you and I know, as I said earlier, when there's pressure, tempers rise. Some of our characters get shown off in all the wrong way. You see it in football teams, don't you? You know, football teams, they're on the same side, they've got the same purpose, they want to win. But what happens in a football team in the 87th minute when the defence mess up? How does the goalkeeper respond to the defenders? What does he typically say? Some of you are goalkeepers. What are you, what, how do you feel about those defenders when they mess up? You get a bit cross. Paul knows that his precious church in Philippi are at risk in the midst of their suffering. So he calls them to have a character that Jesus gives them. He says we should fearlessly, I think, proclaim the gospel together by humbly serving each other. By humbly serving each other. Chapter 2, verse 1. Look at Paul. He, this is Paul at his most wooing, if you like. He's beseeching. He's like he's begging them to this character. Look at him. Look at all the little ennies you've got there. Therefore... If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any 
common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. If you know anything at all about being a Christian, if you know anything at all of the joy of being a Christian, then make my joy complete. There is great encouragement with being united with Christ. You know, it's amazingly encouraging to be united with Christ. You get to enjoy all the joy of God and be certain that you won't lose it. That's incredibly encouraging. There is huge love, boundless love that every Christian knows. Huge comfort that you know that you are loved by God despite your appearances and failures. There's amazing fellowship with the Spirit where the Spirit points you to Jesus, convicts you when you mess up, empowers you to do good and to turn around again and again to live a life of turning from sin and turning to God. Always opening your eyes, hopefully even now, to the Word of God, the Bible. There is incredible fellowship with God himself living in you. Paul says, if you know even the tiniest amount, of what it is to be a Christian, then give him the joy, church. Give him the joy of being profoundly united. Verse 2. Make my joy complete. There's so many things in this little verse about being together. Look, like-minded, same love, one in spirit, And of one mind. Four times he has to say it. Like-minded, same love, one in spirit, and of one mind. In another letter, he calls Christians to live in harmony together. If you have any grasp of what it means to be a Christian, please agree together with Paul on the purpose of the church. And make agreeing together and keeping agreeing together the highest priority for you. To have our minds agree, it's got to mean work. It's got to mean that the church is a training hub where we, where we talk about it. Where we question, what are we here for? What is the best way to talk about Jesus to our community? Where some will give answers and, and we'll work together at those answers. There'll be summaries and then there'll be reminders. Every year, as a church fellowship, actually as a membership, we read out the things we believe. The reason we do that is so that it's a means to help us remain united in the things we believe, to have the same mind. It's a tool, a helpful summary. Because the risk to us Under pressure, when you're trying to talk to Jesus about the wider world, the risk to us is that rivalry and conceit, or selfish ambition as it's written in this translation, rivalry and conceit will overwhelm us. Paul wants to hear the joy of them being united in this gospel purpose, having that as the top priority, and he wants to hear that they flee rivalry and conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, that's rivalry, or vain conceit. Because rivalry, we know, ruins unity. Come on, you know what rivalry is about, don't you? If I was to say to you, it's high time that Watford came to Luton and beat them 5-0 in an FA Cup round, 
some of you are pretty upset about that. Oh, no, Chris isn't. Chris is quite pleased. The one Watford supporter. We know rivalry. Rivalry, rivalry is when we want to see the other person beaten. When we want to see them put down, when we would feel pleasure in their failure. Rivalry is about what you wish for yourself and others. Yourself at the top and others a lot lower. That's rivalry. It ruins unity. And conceit's a killer. This is about comparing yourself to others. Do you know, I think the most conceited animal I know is a cat. You know, I'm sorry if you're a cat lover, but they, I'm pretty sure they're pretty conceited. They think they own you. They walk around your house like it's theirs. And if you don't feed them the right food, they'll happily go to a neighbour and stay with them. Conceit says, I'm more important than you because of my money. Because I'm a, I'm a successful businessman. I know how to run things. I'm more important than you. Conceit says, Conceit says, I'm more important than you because of my gender. The gender wars have gone on since human beings fell. Conceit says, I'm more important than you because of my title. Some organization has given me a title. So I'm more important than you. Conceit says I'm more important than you because of my age, because of my clothes, because I'm better at dressing than you. That's conceit. Ever seen it? Conceit thinks that they are the only one who can do a role in the church the right way. Conceit doesn't ask questions and conceit doesn't mentor anybody. Conceit, without a pause for how hard things can be, dismisses someone's efforts, be they the welcome team, a politician or some leader. A conceited person will dismiss them as incompetent and spend hours putting the world to rights. Conceit doesn't mind telling you what they have done well this week. Conceit kills unity it always understands and rarely asks for help where rivalry ruins unity conceit kills it you know, you know this on the football, I'm sorry about the football pitches today I'm sorry but it's easy to see isn't it, if you have someone who's conceited they go on the ball all the time they don't pass they don't work as a team I mean, they want to win like you want to win. So Paul, in his deep love for this church and longing for its continued growth, calls them to positively embrace unity around gospel purposes, to be their core identity, fleeing from any rivalry and conceit by humbly serving each other. Actually, this, this newer translation of the NIV is excellent. I love it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but listen to this. But rather in humility, value others above yourselves. It's the exact opposite of conceit. And looking, uh, not looking to your own interests, but, uh, but each of you to the interests of the others. 
Where conceit says, I'm, I'm the significant one in the room, listen to my voice, humility does not need to be heard because it assumes that other voices are more significant. The mindset to a, that mindset leads to a staggering action. And it's staggering to us because people like me have grown up in Western individualism. So that when we react to pressure, these are the sorts of things we say. Because we look out for our own interests. And Paul says, don't. Have a character that looks out for the interests of others. So these are the sorts of things you will hear people say. You know, in this group, I don't really feel at home here. I feel pretty alone. You know, in this group, I haven't been, I haven't been amongst the, the church for three weeks now and no one's noticed. No one would miss me. No one listens to me. If we had done it this way, it would have been better. Now, from one perspective, it is obviously terrible if anyone ever feels lonely in a church group. It is obviously the most terrible thing that anyone could ever have a coffee in that room next door and feel alone. That is the worst indictment of a church family who are about love. That is the worst indictment. But all of those sentences, you know, I don't feel at home here and all the rest of it, all of those sentences have something in common. They have me in the middle. Me. Looking out for my own interests. Seeing that my own preferences and ideas are heard. Seeing the church is done the way I want it to be done. When we walk into a room, are we waiting for someone to approach us and talk to us and include us and help us? And how, are, we, are we hoping that our music style will be played and our worship style will be played? Is that what we hope for from church? Do you know, I wonder that you can take almost any of the normal church complaints, put them through this passage, and find somewhere at the heart of them that there is a belief that we as individuals should get our own way. And Paul says, drop it. He says, give up conceit, give up rivalry, and unite, work together on getting the gospel out to people. And to do that, you need an attitude you need an understanding of each other that, that you, you, you look around now to people. They are more important than you. Engender that thinking in your head. Whatever their education level, whatever, however much money they have, however they dress, whatever they smell like, they are actually higher, more important and worthy of your service. Because that is what Jesus did for you. We should fearlessly proclaim the gospel together by humbly serving each other with the attitude that Jesus gives us. The attitude that Jesus gives us. Can you imagine, right? Can you imagine a football... Oh, I've done football again. Okay, well, I've started. Can you imagine a football team, maybe the England women's football team, going into the stadium... Walking up to the American team and saying, we think you deserve to win, so we're not going to play today. You can have it. We'd like you to have the World Cup. Can you imagine that ever happening? I mean, it's just never going to happen, is it? 
It's what Jesus did. I mean, that's a, that's a really poor example of what Jesus did. You see, Jesus, he's always been very great. Look, at verse 6 of chapter 2, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but to, something, sorry, something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus has always been very great. If you were to have a documentary of the life of Jesus, it would start from eternity. He's always been. He's always there. Being, past tense, he's always been there. He's very great. His very nature, his form, is that of God. That was experienced by people like Moses and the people of Israel and Isaiah and Daniel, where they saw the ominous, bright, wonderful, terrifying weight of the glory of God. That's Jesus before the beginning of time. Jesus says himself in John 17 verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. He is the weightiest, most powerful, most wonderful, most beautiful, most joyful king of all eternity. He's very great. And he decided to serve. He served? Look at what he did. Instead of using his greatness to his own advantage, for his own interests, he looked at a world full of human beings who were full of rivalry and full of conceit. He looked at a world of warring people and he said, I am going to serve them. He made himself nothing. The one who hung stars like you hang clothes becomes a human. He's born as a baby in Bethlehem. I mean, why did he choose Bethlehem? Well, he chose Bethlehem because it was prophesied. But I mean, of all places, born in a stable, great king? Surely he's worth better. But he wanted to humble himself. He came to serve. He lives in Nazareth. Nazareth was known in the time to be a dump. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Jesus did. He has to grow. The one who knows all things, the one who's in the form of God, has to grow up, be a teenager, learn like a child. How humbling is this? But his descent doesn't end there. The Philippians, hearing this for the first time, would have been staggered because for them, they're Romans. Some of them are Romans, right? And Romans, glory for Romans, was about Rome. It was the glory of Rome. It was the glory of their victories, the glory of the superior Roman culture. Nobody volunteers to be a slave in Rome. Nobody volunteers to be a slave in Rome, but Jesus did. But he volunteered to have no rights, to be bought and sold, and to be nothing, forgotten, Not talked about, not addressed, only ordered. It's staggering what Jesus does here. But his descent doesn't stop there, does it? To serve us properly, having been found in human appearance, verse 8, he humbled himself further by becoming obedient to death and not just any death. Death on a cross. According to Jewish law, anyone who was crucified 
is under a curse of God. And Jesus chose to be obedient, to be under the curse of God. In polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity. You would never say it in public like I've just said it. It was an obscenity. And Jesus descended to serve us on the cross. Jesus looks through all eternity and sees people suffering under their own foolishness, under their own rivalry, under their own conceit. Jesus looks at them and he has pity on them. And his character, his mind, is to not consider himself important, but to consider them important. To give himself, to die, that we might live. God celebrates that attitude. God thinks that is the best attitude to have. Because in verse 9, God exalted Jesus to the highest place. The one who came last, God makes first. Do you see what's possible here for the Christian church? I hope you you begin to see what's possible. Because of Jesus, your rivalry and conceit, your natural tendency to want things your own way, for your own interests, can be forgiven. It can be changed. You can have a new attitude. You can trust in Jesus, maybe for the first time today, you can trust in Jesus And you can be joined to him. You can be what's called in Christ. And as you are in Christ, by trusting in his death and resurrection and ascension to forgive you, as you trust in him, he will start to work in you his character. You'll be joined to him so much so, you'll become like him. You'll start to think like him. You'll start to associate with people you wouldn't normally associate with. You'll start to criticize people less. You'll start to genuinely love people. Genuinely love people as he did. Do you see what's possible here? As a church in Christ. Even though we live in difficult times, we have an amazing message to declare. The king, the king has given everything to rescue us. This means he can rescue us from our conceit and rivalry. He can develop in us a new joyful attitude of humility and love. And we can be united in a tug of war together to see that the message about Jesus is heard by as many people as possible. And pray that as they hear it, they might believe it. That is the core purpose of the church. The core purpose of the church is to to fearlessly proclaim the gospel together by humbly serving each other with the attitude that Jesus has given us. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we confess, um, we confess that we are so far from Jesus' attitude. We confess, Father, that we do not think of each other the way we ought. We do not think others are more important than ourselves. We've believed the lie of, of individualism in our culture. We believe that we are the most important thing, that our opinion is the most important thing. We thank you that Jesus didn't do that. We thank you that Jesus didn't use his power to lord it over us, but he used his power to rescue us from ourselves. We want to thank you now, Lord Jesus. Amen. We're going to stand and sing a new song. It's really easy to pick up. Jesus, thank you.